can grab your Bible and turn once again, one last time in our evening series to the book of Esther, as we come to its conclusion uh, together tonight. We're going to look at all of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, and if your Bible's open in front of you right now, you'll notice that chapter 10 in its three verses is really nothing more than a postscript, so the vast majority of our attention will come in chapter 9 itself, but to get us going and give you a sense of this kind of conclusion, climactic, final reversal in the text. I'm going to read the first 19 verses of chapter 9 and then pray that God will bless our study and we'll begin. So listen once again as God speaks to you through the book of Esther. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshadantha and Dalphon and Aspa and Paratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Pamashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. And that very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It it shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and the fourteenth day they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and fasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through your word, and as we come to this wonderful short story one last time, ask that you would again speak to us clearly, 
that you would speak to us words of comfort, words of confidence that we might know what it means to fight against the raging foe that strives against us, that we might resist the devil in our humility, in our resistance, that we might stand firm and so he would flee from us as we look to Christ in all things. We do pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In January uh, of 1944, the Nazi war machine seemed to grind to a screeching halt in World War II. Soviet Russia had stopped them in the east. It was from the soft underbelly of southern Europe that the Allied forces were driving north. And so on January 30th of that year, 1944, uh, Adolf Hitler took to the radio. It happened to be the 11th anniversary of the Nazis' rise to power. And he meant to encourage, he meant to exhort his German people in the midst of the fight they found themselves in, which was a fight he called a fight for the soul of the continent. And he talked about the troubles that they were having along the way, and then he even mentioned aloud that if the Jews won the war, that they would, quote, triumphantly, triumphantly celebrate another feast of Purim. That's a feast that shows up in our text tonight. Because what you might not realize is throughout the atrocities and calamities that belonged to the Jewish people during World War II, there was a particular book in their scriptures that brought them sustaining encouragement, sustaining confidence, and it was this book of Esther. Actually, the Nazis themselves found out about it, so much so that they banned anyone from reading the book. If you were found in a concentration camp reading Esther, you'd be summarily executed on the spot. But so rich and so important was this vital book to the Jewish people during those years that many came forth from World War II being able to quote the entire book from memory. Such is the power, isn't it, of remembering God's might and deliverance of his people over against their enemies. And so what we're coming to tonight is the end of Esther. I trust it won't be the end of Esther's glory in your heart and usefulness in your mind. Because much like God's people throughout all the ages, a church today and perhaps you in your own life, you feel as though you're oppressed on every side by enemies. That adversity greets you on all corners. And I wonder if you have any stories of old that help you recall God's power that help you remember God's might against your enemies and his foes. And of course, this is a story that's giving you no small reasons of truth and no small number of instances to reflect on what it means that God defeats his enemies. Because what we see is the story, in a variety of striking ways, comes full circle uh, tonight. And it's simply a text that's telling us this main point, and it's that God's promise always wins. God's promise never fails, thus God's promise always wins. And it's one of the more stunningly simple truths that you'll find all throughout the Bible. And kids, if you can learn this lesson, that God's promise always wins, you will, should the Lord tarry and He continue to sustain you, find yourself eventually facing opposition and affliction. Trouble will be on the rise, things will get rough and tough. And if you know, though, that God's promise always wins, you'll have what you need for continuing in confidence, continuing in faith, continuing in urgent obedience to the Lord. 
So there's a number of different sections in our text tonight. I simply want to walk through it under two summary ones. First, it's a call to fight in hope. And then secondly, feast in remembrance. Fight in hope in the first 19 verses and feasting in remembrance in the final half of chapter 9. We'll spend most of our time in the first half. So fight and hope. Notice again verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So students, I I trust you remember where we left off two weeks ago. Remember Haman, this man mentioned here in this passage, who was the enemy of the Jews. He was the hater of the Jews. He had been hanged on the very gallows, 75 feet high, that he had created to hang Mordecai. Although the hater of the Jews was hanged, his edict that called for the killing, destroying, and annihilating of God's people, that was still in power. And so we saw Esther do as she came before the king and fell on her knees, pled for her people's lives before the king. She wanted him to do away, really, with Haman's edict. But after all, it was a law of the Medes and the Persians. You can't just do away with that. But the king allowed Mordecai to write a new law that essentially would balance the playing field, if you will. And so Mordecai's law sounded almost identical to Haman's law. That on that very same day that Haman had decreed, Now Mordecai's decree said the Jews were allowed to rise up and defend themselves, killing, destroying, and annihilating all those who would come against them. And the author of this book leaves us, doesn't he, in in no suspense over how that day is going to go from the first verse telling us a great reversal occurred. And if you've been with us through our weeks of study in Esther, it's almost every single chapter we've mentioned these tiny reversals that have showed up in the story, that the story itself is one giant account of a redemptive reversal. And you see even verse 9 uses that language, that the reverse occurred. The unexpected happened. The unaccounted for came to pass. And you'll notice in verse 2 and 3, even as it speaks about Mordecai's rise in power, which is his own stunning reversal we'll see by the end of our text tonight. Mordecai's rise in power has been so great has been so noticeable that now the major governors, the major officials throughout the kingdom have turned coat and are now on team Jewish people. For when the day arrives, they are going to fight and help the Jews. And you see the outcome is simple enough. Verse 5 and 6 of this day of battle. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. 500 men may not sound like a lot to you. It certainly was a lot for this time. And if you glance down to King Ahasuerus' words, this idea of 500 men is, is stunning to him. He basically has this thought in his mind, well, if they have killed 500 people in this city... Imagine what the whole empire has brought. And so he wonders aloud. And he seems to be actually somewhat excited is the tone that follows in verse 11 and 12. So excited is he. It almost as though he opens his heart yet again, wants to write another blank check of his power to his queen Esther saying, well, whatever you want, I'll give you whatever your desire is. 
verse 12, ending, and what further is your request, it shall be fulfilled. So this isn't the first time that King Ahasuerus has essentially given Esther the permission to ask for anything, because he'll give her anything. Previously, it was things like, well, we come to a banquet the next day, and then it was eventually let us write this edict and this law. But now, you'll notice that she cashes in this blank check. And what I want you to see is that it's according to God's covenant curses. Because what she says, look at verse 13. If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Many people have wondered throughout the ages about Esther's motive in this moment. Is it simply just a motive of bloodlust? Venge and vengefulness and vindication against their enemies. But that's certainly not true because essentially what Esther is asking for here is the permission to continue the holy war. Because if you glance back up, what you'll see, of course, in verse 7 and 8, is that these ten sons of Haman were executed on that day of battle. And now... What Esther says is not only let us wage the warfare another day, let's expose these criminals of Agag upon the gallows, bringing shame upon them. So if you backtrack the story a little bit, you might remember from many chapters ago that we talked about how Haman was an Agagite, that he was a descendant of Agag and Amalekite, which was a historic rival of God's people, particularly the Agagites and the Benjaminites throughout redemptive history in the Old Testament, loathed each other? Well, of course, Haman is an Agagite, and what is Mordecai but a Benjaminite? And what God had called his people to do in the book that we're now reading through in our consecutive readings of 1 Samuel, and around chapter 15, he's calling Saul to do away with the house of Agag. He's supposed to remove them from existence, such as God's justice against their sinfulness. But if you know the story, Saul actually doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And now in God's providence and redemptive history, centuries and centuries later, his descendants of Benjamin, they come and do what their great ancestor Saul was supposed to do, finally removing the house of Agag. And so holy war is continuing, of course, because these are hanged on the gallows. It was part of covenant cursing, according to the book of Joshua, for God's enemies to be hanged on wood. Such was his punishment for their sinfulness. And there's a way in which you can underscore even the nature of the holy war. This isn't some sort of just revenge-filled crusade. This is God's war against his enemies. And maybe you noticed as I was reading the passage that three times, verse 10, 15, and 16, we're told that the Jews defended themselves, killed their enemies, but they took no plunder. You see that? Look again just simply at verse 10. After executing the sons of Haman the enemy of the Jews, they laid no hand on the plunder. So clearly the author is wanting to signal for us three times they laid no hand on the plunder. Well, Why is that important? Well, for two reasons. One, Mordecai in his edict had given them permission to lay their hands on the plunder, but they're not doing it. Well, why are they not doing that? Because you're meant to see this as an Old Testament holy war. It's God's justice poured out upon his enemies. For none of this belongs to them. This battle belongs to the Lord. They're merely his instruments of defeat. 
and victory over his enemies. So how great is that defeat? Well, again, glance at verse 16. The rest of the Jews who were gathered in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Previously in verse 5, they used the language of the Jews did as they pleased, which really is meant to underscore, of course, the ease of this fight. It wasn't really difficult to defend themselves and to pursue God's enemies. But of course, it's another reversal in and of itself. You might recall how the beginning of the book found these pagan officials doing as they pleased. And now the end of the book finds God's people doing as they pleased as they're fighting in hope according to God's promise. So the text turns from the call to fight in hope to feast in remembrance. Of course, as all of you know, we're soon to come upon the holiday season in our nation. And kids, I wonder what your favorite holiday is. I mean, if you know, of course, holidays really punctuate the civic life of America from New Year's to Easter to Fourth of July to Thanksgiving to, to Christmas. These holidays, which is just another way of saying holy days, mark off our ordinary public life. And if you were a Jew at this time, you would have no small number of, of holy days or holidays that would punctuate your life. And what happens now in Esther in the Jewish experience is another holiday is added to their religious life. It's one that's going to be called the Feast of Purim. We don't need to deal too much with it because it's altogether simple. But just notice what it means according to verse 20 through 22. Mordecai recorded all these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And even if you glance back up at verse 19, I'm sorry, 18 and 19, you'll notice that this first feast happened throughout the empire, and then there was a feast, same feast that happened in the citadel of Susa, which again is a coming a full circle in the story because it began with this pagan feast throughout the empire that eventually brought together this pagan feast in the city of Susa. And here is God's people once again gathering now annually to remember God's victory for them over their enemies. Of course, you know as well as I do, I trust that we no longer live in the old covenant age, but we live in the glorious new covenant reality of Jesus Christ when those feasts and festivals and holidays of old have passed away. But of course, the good news of Jesus Christ is he knows that we often need times to remember, times of appointed feasting that we might not forget his power towards us, and such as the bountiful mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that he's given us what? A feast in the Lord's Supper that we might remember what it means that God has defeated Sin, Satan, and death, as Colossians chapter 2 says, he has placed them and exposed them to open shame by triumphing over them in his son as he died on the cross. And so in our church, of course, every single week on Sunday morning, we feast to remember. Remember what it means that God's promise always wins. 
Such is God's promise towards his people that not only are they saved, not only are they protected, Mordecai rises to the place of prominence. You see the very final verse of this book, chapter 10, verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to all his people. Who was the previous person at Ahasuerus' right hand, the second in power, but Haman, the hater of the Jews. And now the story ends with Mordecai, the friend of the Jews, in that same place of power and prominence. Friends, you can truly trust that God's promise always wins. In the National Basketball Association and National Football League, they have something that they call the Rookie Transition Program. They take these athletes, most of whom, of course, are coming from college and are trying to, in just a concentrated way, show them what it means to live this new life that they're now living as a professional athlete. It's a new life that brings a new team. It's a new life that brings new responsibilities. It's a new life that brings new privileges. And this transition program is meant to help them, prepare them for how it ordinarily goes. In a reverent way, what Esther is doing for you is the exact same thing. Because if you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you too have a new family. You too have new responsibilities. You too have new privileges. You've been brought into the Lord's army. You've been listed into his militia. You're fighting this great holy war of the ages, which is the cosmic power of darkness that we fight against through our sword, which of course isn't one of metal, but it's one of the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word, the very simple means of grace, the tools against or with which we strive against Satan. And Esther's showing you how it ordinarily goes. And I want to give you three final thoughts about it ordinarily going, according to the book of Esther. That's a book, isn't it, that's simply calling us, number one, to know the hidden power of God's sovereignty. To know the hidden power of God's sovereignty. Don't forget, God's name is never mentioned directly in this book. God's hand of power never shows up manifestly in this book. That all his people know that he has done it. But of course, we know that nothing happens in this story by coincidence or happenstance. It's all God's providence throughout the whole thing. And it's quite possible that even the Feast of Purim in its name alludes to that. Because, of course, you'll notice that the language of Purim or, or Pur, it was already used in this book all the way back in chapter 3, verse 7. Remember, Haman was casting lots for the day when he was going to destroy the Jews. And Pur basically just means lots. Purim means the casting of the dice, children, is a way to think about it. And maybe it's as though this Feast of Purim is just kind of taking the ironic twist of the way Haman was using the word. But it actually seems quite likely that it's the Jews' recognition that nothing in their life happens according to a casting of the lots. Simple happenstance or circumstance. But it's always the lot of God's providence. With its hidden power, His sovereign purpose coming to pass in their lives. It's telling you that whenever station you're in tonight, wherever you find yourself this week, you can know the hidden power of God's providence. Number two, that you're to hope in the safety of God's people. The safety of God's people. You might remember how in previous chapters it seemed that God's people were always put on the brink. 
right? These gallows, 75 feet high, raised for Mordecai's execution. Just the next morning, the date of the Jews' extermination and the final solution, it's set in place. Well, until it all wasn't, was it? It was the next day that Haman is hanged instead of Mordecai. It was on that appointed day that the enemies of God are destroyed instead of the people of God. And why is that? But God always protects His people. That no matter where you are, you are ultimately safe in Jesus Christ. Whatever that sin is, it will not ultimately prevail against you if you belong to the Savior. No matter what that opposition is, it will not ultimately overcome you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. It's calling you to know the hidden power of God's sovereignty, to hope in the safety of God's people, and finally look to the surety of God's promise. Look to the surety of God's promise. His promise always prevails, and why does it? Well, because God's promise can never fail. But we also know this side of the work of Jesus Christ, that it's because all of God's promises are yes and amen in His Son. You might notice as we were reading through the passage, you can just glance up to verse 16. It was on that day that the Jews got relief from their enemies. And then verse 18 tells us it was on those days that they rested, days of feasting and gladness. And from where did that relief, where did that rest come? But covenant curses falling on God's enemies. Essentially, it's focusing our attention on the hanging of men upon wood. The covenant curse falling upon them. Of course, and how is it that anyone today can find rest and relief? Well, it's of course because Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, He Himself bore the covenant curse of being hung on wood in the place of sinners like you and me. That if you would but turn from your sin and trust in Him, you might know that God's hidden power of sovereignty, always working for your good and for His glory, that you're ultimately and always safe in His arms, that every single promise that He's made to you is sure, it is guaranteed, it will be accomplished in Jesus Christ. Because, of course, it's in Jesus Christ that God's promise, it always wins. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness and all your words and your truthfulness in all your works. Lord, we ask for your comfort in the midst of whatever our hardship may be this night, whatever difficulty might come this week, that with eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ, we might run our race with endurance, always looking to him who is the author and perfecter of our faith, always looking to him who is the guarantee of your promise coming to pass for our good and for your glory. And we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.